precisely it. I pray now, as we come to your word, that you would unveil your beauties to our sight, so that we might love you more. Father, open our hearts, open up our minds, that we might see Christ and we might see him clearly. Father, we know that if only we could see him, we would love him. And so I pray that you would do that for us even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 12, though this morning our concentration will be just on the last three verses, 10 through 12. 1 Peter in chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, Peter begins these last few verses simply by saying, concerning this salvation. Now it appears then, that what concerns Peter at this moment in his writing is that they understand this salvation. They understand this salvation about which he speaks. And I had to ask the question when I came to that point is why? Why at this particular juncture is Peter concerned about their understanding this salvation? Why is it at this particular place that Peter is concerned that, he, that he's able to say, now this salvation that I've been talking about, I want you to know something about it. Now why is that the case? As I began to read First Peter again and again and again, I began to realize that the key for Peter is that they understand the nature of this salvation because he's writing to a suffering people. He's writing to a people who are suffering and he's writing to a people who are suffering and probably going to face even more suffering in the future. They're suffering various trials, he says, that can come about by simply the fact that we live in a fallen world, we live in a sinful world and there's all kinds of things that take place in our lives and all kinds of temptations that come to us and sufferings and so forth. But even still he's saying you're suffering now and probably will suffer in the future simply because you're a Christian, simply because you're living righteously. And there are those who will come against you because of that. And he's writing to this suffering group of people and he's going to give to them a radical word. And by that I mean that he's going to speak to them straightly the very truth of God, how they're to live in the midst of this. And it won't be a soft, cuddly word. 
He's going to tell them how they're to live in this suffering, that even though they're suffering, they still must live a faithful, trusting, godly life. And he's going to speak to them this radical word. I don't know about you, but I think each of us needs someone who will speak that radical word to us at times of times of need. I remember when I was heading off to seminary a couple of years ago that I met with two men that I respected a great deal and I was expecting them to say to me, Bill, you need to work really hard, save your money and a couple of three years then go off to seminary. But these men came to me and said, Bill, you need to go now. And I said, but I don't have any money. And they said, go. And I said, you didn't hear me. I don't have any money. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. I don't know how this is going to happen. I have a wife and two small children. And they said, God has called you. Go. You must trust him. And that for me was a hard word at that moment in time. And each of us needs people like Peter who are going to come in the midst of difficulty and speak the truth to us in love. The Christian who's contemplating an abortion, someone needs to go to them and say, don't do that. If there's a believer about to marry an unbeliever, someone needs to go to them and say, don't do that. We need people in our lives who say, you know, you need to give that away. We need people in our lives who are saying, you need to cut back on this so that you can do more ministry. We need people in our lives, as Jesus said, if somebody wants you to go one mile, we need somebody to come to us and say, go two. We need somebody to come to us when someone asks to borrow our coat to give them our shirt too. And someone to come to us and say, no, you need to do that as well. We need to have people who come into our lives and speak this truth, even though it may not be comfortable, even though it might not be easy, even though it might not be the words that's expected to be given. But we need people like that. And Peter's saying, listen, there's nobody else that's going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Because even though they're suffering, Peter's going to come to them, for instance, in chapter 1 and verse 13, and say this. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know you're suffering. I know this is difficult. But but you still have to be tough-minded. Don't let anybody take you away from concentrating upon Christ and what's coming. Don't sell out now. Keep your focus there. And he's going to tell them in verse 16 of this same chapter that even in the midst of these difficulties that they are to live holy lives. He isn't coming and putting his arm around them and saying, I know it's really tough. He's saying, listen, even in the midst of this, don't stop living holy lives. In fact, that's going to mean, as he puts it in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says that you're to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He's saying, even though there are people coming against you, you can't slander them. You can't, um, you can't speak maliciously against them. And even though there might be people who are living nicer lives than you, people that are living lives that you'd like to live, you can't envy them. You have to take the life that God has given you and live it out. So even in the midst of the difficulty, he's not softening this word. In fact, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying, listen, I know it's tough, but you still can't give in to your sinful passions. I know it's difficult, but you still can't sin in the midst of this. Still, you must live a godly life. And then beginning with verse 13 in chapter 2, he starts talking about various institutions. First, government, and then the institution of employment. There, it was slavery. And even the institution of marriage. 
And he's saying, you may be in a situation where the government is persecuting you, still you must be in submission to them. You may be in a situation where your master or employer is treating you unjustly, you still must respect them. And he speaks to a wife who is married to an unbeliever who doesn't want to hear the word and he says, still, you must live a godly life, meaning you still must respect and be in submission to your husband. That's a radical word. Nobody else is going to talk like this. And he goes on to say that you're to live your life in in this way to show the hope that is in you, so much so that people will come up to you and ask you what you're hoping in in the midst of all these difficulties. How can you live the way that you're living and how can you continue to have hope given what's going on in your life? And he says, in fact, this very suffering is the will of God, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And he says to them in chapter 5 and verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Continue to trust him, he says, in the midst of these difficulties. He doesn't say the difficulties are going to go away. He doesn't say that it's going to become any easier. He just simply speaks this word to them. Be tough-minded. Be holy. Don't sin. Continue to live out the plan of God as he describes it to be in submission to those who are in authority over you, that God has put in authority over you. And understand, it's God who's at work. This is from him. And so humble yourself before him and trust him. And I think Peter is saying concerning this salvation, that is, if you don't understand the greatness of your salvation, you'll never be able to live like this. If you don't understand the greatness of your salvation, you'll never be able to continue to persevere and pull this off. So he says, I want you to stop for just a minute. I want you to think about this great salvation. I want you to see it. And it would do us well to see it as well, because there was a psalmist named Asaph in Psalm number 73 who I think, if you understand and remember the sermon I preached last Sunday, was one who watched friends. Because he envied the ungodly. He looked at these around him, and he says, they hate it when I do this, and they said, "Um, I see their lives, and they seem happier than me, they seem healthier than me, they seem wealthier than me, they seem more popular than me, and, 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 and why am I living this righteous life when it's not seemingly paying off in the course of my life? And the scripture says, as Asaph works through this psalm, he comes to verse 16, and he says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then... I discern their end. He's saying, then, I think Peter would say, I understood the greatness of my own salvation. I understood what I had and they didn't. For a while it seemed what they had and what I didn't have made them better off than me, but it didn't. For now I see. For now I see what I have. I see the greatness of my salvation. As I stand in the presence of God, as I stand in the sanctuary of God, I realize that I have eternal life. I might not have health and I might not have wealth and I might not have popularity and the world may not love me as it does some others, but what I do have is great and it really is all that's necessary. He saw that we need to see that and I think Peter is saying you need to see the greatness of this salvation. And so he stops.
and says concerning this salvation. Now let me just say some things about this salvation that are obvious. First of all, when we talk about this salvation, we use that word in English, we use that word in our vernacular, saved or salvation, to describe a situation where someone is kept from a great disaster. Uh, for instance, we use it rather casually, although I don't know if it's casually to a boxer, but some boxers we could say he was saved by the bell. And what's that mean? He was saved from losing the fight, to fight another round, which he may or may not have wanted to do. But he was saved by the bell. Sometimes people look at a person and they say, well, his only salvation is his good looks. Meaning, that's the thing that's going to keep him out of trouble. No one's ever said that about me. Uh, we say that person's salvation is the fact that they married well. They do say that about me. Um, I do want lunch. Uh, 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 they married well. You know, that's the thing that's going to save them from great disaster in the context of their life, which makes this a fine word, a great word for us, because because we have been saved from the great disaster through Christ, and that is the wrath of God. We've been saved from the wrath of God because of the work of Christ. We've been saved from the wrath of God to receive his forgiveness, to receive eternal life. We've been saved from this condemnation to eternal life. We've been saved from estrangement from God that our sin puts us into, saved from that into being adopted into his family. We've been saved from a life of meaninglessness to a life of purposefulness. See, everything else is meaningless without Christ because it's not eternal. It simply won't last. We can continue to go after it and after it and after it, but a day will come when it will be no more without Christ. And so there's only meaning ultimately in this life in Him because that's all that will last for all eternity, that which is associated, that which is attached, that which belongs to Christ. And so we have been saved from this great disaster into this wonderful life. So Peter is saying, now think about that. Not only that, but this word salvation is kind of the big word. It's the word that we use to describe all these little pieces in which we describe our salvation. For instance, we can plug the word election into this big word salvation that God has chosen us before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight, that work of God. We can put this word born again or regeneration into this big word salvation because, uh, because it includes it, because the Holy Spirit has given us new life so that we can believe and have eternal life and that's our salvation. We can put the word conversion in there because there was a time in which we repented of our sins and trusted in Christ and we say, ah, that's when I was saved. We can put the word redemption in there because it's through the work of Christ that we've been saved. He's the one who rescues us. We can put the word justification in there because that simply means that God has declared us to be righteous and he can only declare us to be righteous when our sins are forgiven and when we find ourselves in Christ believing in him. We can throw the word sanctification in there, which is an old word. The modern, more modern notion is spiritual formation. Christ being formed in us, that we're maturing in our faith and becoming in our expression of life more holy. That sanctification. We can put the word glorification in there because that refers to the, the time when we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. So all of that comes under this heading of salvation in each one of these senses. But what Peter's been laying out for us is not simply the senses of our salvation, but the tenses of our salvation. That is, there's a past and a present and a future 
to our salvation. That is, a person can say, I have been saved, and a person can say, I am being saved, and a person can say, I will be saved. All those are true, because salvation is all-encompassing. Peter, notice, in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, past tense, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We can say, I have been, if you're a believer in Christ, born again. I've been made new. Thus, I've been saved. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's happened. You say, I have been saved. But, we're not simply saved to be put on the shelf because Peter tells us that there's a presentness to our salvation as well. Notice, in chapter 9, he speaks of obtaining the outcome of your faith. He says, what you're going through right now is enabling you to obtain, that is, right now, and throughout the course of your life, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And by that he means this, that when a person is saved, when a person has received salvation through faith in Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, but the power, the dominion of that sin over your life is broken. And in the course of this life, what we're obtaining, what we're living out, what we're receiving in the context of our salvation as ex is experiencing the power of this sin diminishing in our lives. And so he's saying, through these trials and through these tests of faith, what is happening is that you're being sanctified. What is happening right now is that you're obtaining salvation in the sense that you're growing more holy. That the dominion and power of sin is being lessened in the context of your life. So you're justified. That's the past tense of your salvation. You're born again. You're justified. You're declared righteous. But in the present, what is happening, the present aspect of your salvation is that you're growing in holiness. And then there's a future tense to this salvation as well. Because the day is coming when all of this will come into consummation and you'll be glorified. And Peter speaks of that, for instance, in the end of verse 5. He speaks of this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's saying there's still something to come when it will all come together and you'll be glorified. So if anyone asks, ever asks you uh, when you were saved, you can just simply say yes. Now, Peter then lays all this out. And you see they're able to see the great grace of this salvation because it's a work of God. He's the one who has elected them. He is the one who by his mercy has caused them to be born again. Same is true for us who are believers. Uh, they've been able to see the great hope that this salvation has in it because it's a living hope. It's a hope that's always there because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. It really is true. He really does live within us by the Holy Spirit and that hope continues to flow and to work in us. They see the great security of this salvation because it's an inheritance kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by God's power and so they see the security of this salvation as well. In fact, he's seen, uh, they see the life of this salvation because the life of this salvation is this process of going through trials and seeing faith tested and refined and purified and proven genuine. He's seen expression of this salvation in, in the rejoicing 
in the love that they have for Christ, in the faith that they have in Christ. And now he's coming to say, now concerning all of that, there's one more thing you've got to get. And I must confess, when I came to these verses, I almost skipped them. Because I thought, ah, there's nothing really new here. I don't know what I'll say. And that always scares me when I do that. It always scares me when I come upon a passage of scripture or some verses and I go, I don't really need to spend time here. This really doesn't impress me. This really doesn't really move me that much. And when I think that, I go, "But, but why is something moving Peter and not moving me? You see, on the spiritual gauge, I sort of put Peter somewhere beyond me. And so I think if this seemed important to him, if this is where his thinking is going, if this seems to be the next piece, the thing that's going to get him over the edge to talk to a group of people who are suffering and going through trials and difficulties and suffering grief and so forth, and and, and if this is needed, then I better get my mind around it. I better get my heart around it. So I began to think, all right, Peter, what is it that you've got going here? What is it that you're saying? Because you see, we always have to realize that if Christ is Lord then his word is what should determine our thinking. We don't get to determine what we like to think about or what we think is necessary to think about or what we think the good arguments are. We follow him because he's the Lord. And we're to wrap our minds around him. And so as we look at this, he says, all right, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And so he's saying, listen, I've told you about this grace that is yours. Now I want you to tell you, I want to tell you its origins. I want to tell you how it began. And it began all the way back with the prophets. And when he's talking about the prophets, he's talking about really the whole Old Testament. He's talking about Moses, who was indeed a deliverer, but also a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, God speaks to Moses and said, A day will come when I will raise up another prophet like you. Speaking of Jesus, but he referred to Moses as a prophet. And Moses was a prophet. Not so much because he foretold the future, but he spoke the truth of God. That's what a prophet does. And then, of course, there's David. And we don't always think of David as a prophet, but he prophesied through the Psalms. This great poet of Israel, this great songwriter of Israel, spoke much of Christ throughout his Psalms. And so he, too, was a prophet. And then, of course, there's all the other normal kind of prophet people. We think of Elijah and Elisha, and we think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and and, and, and Nahum and Zephaniah and all those guys. The prophets of God. And so Peter's saying, now I want to tell you, concerning this salvation, they prophesied about the grace that you now have. And he says, notice this. He says, the grace that was to be yours... They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now that is amazing. Because you see, what, he's, what Peter is saying is that it was the Spirit of Christ, I'm warm, excuse me, the Spirit of Christ who was, the Spirit of Christ who was in them, and it was the Spirit of Christ who was doing the predicting. Now they were writing it down and they were speaking it and they were saying it, but it was the Spirit of Christ, that's the he there in this verse, it was the Spirit of Christ who was in them who was predicting. And what's so fascinating about that is when we read through the Old Testament, we don't notice the Holy Spirit that much. Oh, he's there, we can find him in various references, but the Holy Spirit isn't discussed or isn't referenced very much at all. But he is referenced a great deal in the New Testament. In fact, as we come upon the scene in the New Testament, we see 
that, 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 that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. We see in Jesus' baptism that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. In fact, we see then on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he begins to talk to them a great deal about this coming Holy Spirit. You can read about it in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And when Jesus speaks of the coming Holy Spirit, he says, this is what he'll do. He will glorify me, meaning that the job of the Holy Spirit is to show who Jesus is. He's to reveal Jesus. He's to glorify him. So if you're able to understand and discern who Jesus is, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to show us who Jesus is. That's his work. And in fact, we see his work throughout the whole New Testament then. After Jesus ascends, it's really about the work of the Holy Spirit bringing Jesus up close and personal, bringing Jesus into the lives of people, convicting of their sin, indwelling them, giving them new life, and enabling them to come to faith in Christ, so that Christ, as Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4, may be formed in them. Do you understand, at this moment in time, as a believer in Christ, the Spirit of God has worked in you. He's worked in you to convince you of your sin. He's worked in you to convince you of the sufficiency of Christ. He's worked in you so that you can believe and say, I believe in Jesus. I've never seen him, but I trust him. I trust that he's the savior of my soul. I trust he is the Lord of my life. And I will trust him and I will follow him. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the book of Acts, it's often referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. It could very easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because from beginning to end, we see the Spirit of God at work, bringing Christ to people. And what's so fascinating about that is that Peter is saying the Holy Spirit was doing exactly the same thing in the Old Testament. It was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets who was saying, this is the Christ who is to come. Notice, he says, Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, that he is the Spirit of Christ, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He's saying that was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was taking everybody in the Old Testament, all these prophets saying, this is the suffering of Christ and this is the glory that is to come. Same Holy Spirit, same work. And Peter's saying, don't miss that. In the midst of your Christian life, don't miss the fact that it's deep, that it's rich, that it's the line that God has been preaching and teaching and showing. Peter gives us more insight into the prophets as well. He says, notice, he says, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings and glories. That is, you get this sense that when Ezekiel was was writing about the dry bones, he was thinking, Okay, but when's this going to happen? And how's, how's this going to happen? And who's going to bring this about? And when he wrote about that beautiful temple that had the, the river of life flowing from it, you've got to believe that Ezekiel was intrigued by that, encouraged by that, and motivated by that to, to keep thinking, God, who's going to bring this about? How's this going to happen? And they would inquire. In fact, we read in Daniel chapter 9, that he, he was so interested in all these things that he inquired of Jeremiah. And he read the prophecies of Jeremiah and he says, oh, okay, I'm getting it. I see it. And God had to reveal even more to him. But, but they inquired, they were interested, they weren't casual observers because the Spirit of Christ was in them. And so we see throughout 
the whole of the Old Testament, the sufferings and glories of Christ. For instance, what we really should do is just break and go read the Old Testament and come back. But let me just give you very quickly just a few little stones to put your feet on. I know what they're saying. Psalm 22, for instance, David. He writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we think of David as a king, but really he's this prophet as well. And, and, and he's a poet. He's the poet, the songwriter of, of Israel. Now, I'm not a poet or an artist. And forgive me if you're a poet or an artist. But poets and artists live weird lives. Because a part of their calling is to feel and communicate that which other people aren't feeling and can't really communicate that well. That's one of the functions that poets and artists provide for us in in culture, but even in the context of the life of the church. And so here's David. And you've got to believe that during the course of David's life as all these things are happening to him. People love him, people hate him, people are chasing after him, people are receiving him, people want to kill him, other people want him to live and praise him and so forth and so on. And all these things, David has given these songs to write. And you've got to believe that he's thinking, I know this applies to me in some measure, but the depths of it, the scope of it seems so great. Why would I write, why God have you forsaken me? Your average Israelite parishioner isn't walking through the temple saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for David, that's precisely where he is. And of course, Christ would say the very same. In verse 7 of this chapter, he writes, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's exactly what they said of Christ on the cross. In chapter, in verse 17 in chapter 22, David writes, I can count on my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. No doubt, this was an experience that David was having in some sense, but yet, this is exactly what would happen with Christ as well. Isaiah probably is the most well known of all the prophets who spoke of the Messiah. And in an Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. Isaiah is in the midst of, of, of talking about this suffering servant. And he began talking about this suffering servant way back in chapter 49. And he began to talk about him in the sense that you, you thought that Israel, the nation, was the suffering servant. But, but then as, as things progressed, you realize, no, this is a person. This isn't a nation. This is a person. And so uh, Isaiah comes to verse 6 in chapter 50 and he says of this person... I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Again, describing Jesus. And here he is. And you've got to think that Isaiah's thinking, all right, who is this? When will this person come? And how will such disgrace bring about the salvation of Israel? And of course you know how Isaiah writes in Isaiah beginning in chapter 52, beginning in verse 13 all the way through chapter 53. For instance, verse 14 speaks of this one. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. 
for that which has not been told of them, told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And you have to think, Isaiah is thinking, how can this be such a contrast? One who's so marred and disfigured, yet one who has such power over the nations that he shuts their mouths. And then chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was not despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You've got to think, Isaiah is thinking, who is this? And how is this going to work? How is salvation to come to us when the Savior seems to be killed? How is it that the one who is to judge sin seems to be crushed by it? How is it that the one who is to save us is going to die? How can that be true? And you've got to think all of this is going around and around in his head. But you see, they not only got a glimpse of the sufferings of Christ, but also the glories of Christ as well. There's no more encouraging read than the Old Testament. Because you see, they continually come back to the glories of Christ. To the glories that are going to come. Oh yes, there's judgment and killing and all that stuff. But it's always coming back. For instance, Isaiah speaks in Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 11. Again, I'm just picking these verses rather randomly. We can just sort of open pages and and find encouraging passages. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 11, it says, "And And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's real. Saying a day will come when this will be true. When you won't know anything but gladness. You won't know anything but joy. That's coming. A couple of weeks ago, I spent the most wonderful afternoon of my life, probably. I was, I was at Wrigley Field, Chicago. Tenth row back from home plate. The only person in my way was the umpire. It was incredible. But it wasn't this. Because in a moment, it would only take a phone call. Or I was there with George Boomer, and every once in a while we'd talk business, and we'd talk about things going on in the life of the church. And, 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 and it wasn't long before joy was diminished because of the sorrows that exist. But this is glorious. A day is coming when all we'll know is gladness And all will know his joy. Jeremiah speaks of a time that's partially here. As this joy is partially here. Jeremiah speaks of a time when when we won't need anybody to teach us because everyone will know intimately the Lord. And his law will be written on our hearts so that we can go no other way. 
See, the prophets knew of this great glory. Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 65 of a, of a great glory where there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Do you remember Ezekiel speaking of this great restoration that's going to take place when there will be a city whose name is God is there. We'll live in the very presence of God. That's what it will be like. And so you see, Peter saying now concerning this salvation, it is a great salvation. Don't miss it. Don't forget. Don't realize, Don't forget the fact that, that the very prophets had the Spirit of Christ in them. And this is really true. And he goes on to say, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. That is, they knew all along they weren't getting the whole picture. They knew all along there was more that was to come. And don't you understand, we're now living in that more that was to come. And if they were able to survive it, if they were able to persevere through it, if they were able to continue on even though they didn't see it all, Shouldn't you be able to continue on even in the midst of your difficulty, even in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your suffering, if you're tough-minded, if you think back concerning this salvation? And he says, they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that dwelt these prophets that enabled them to speak of Christ is the same Holy Spirit who is now speaking to us through Peter. For he had the very Holy Spirit in him. And that's why Peter could write in Second Peter in chapter 1 and verse 21 this. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you remember that after the resurrection, Jesus came to his disciples and what did he do? He came to them and he opened the scriptures. From Moses, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and he showed them where he was in all that. So that they would know, hey, this is rich, this is deep. And as the apostles began to preach, they began to preach this very same truth. For instance, in Acts and chapter 3 and verse 17, this is Peter preaching. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter's saying, listen, he's come, trust him. He's in heaven now and he will be until the restoring of all things, but trust him. And he says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That, of course, is Jesus. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He's saying, listen, everything that was said is about Jesus. And not only everything that was said, but even everything that was done, the very lives of people. For instance, in Abraham we see Jesus. Abraham was chosen by God and out of him would come a great nation. 
Jesus is the chosen one of God. Out of him comes a great nation. Do you remember there was a time in Abraham's life when he had the son of promise, the son of the covenant, Isaac. And God said, I want you to take him and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. And for three days they made this trip. And in the mind of Abraham, no doubt, Isaac was as good as dead those three days. But the author of Hebrews said that Abraham in his mind that at the end God would raise Isaac from the dead. Because how, how else could it happen? He was the son of the promise. He was the son of the covenant. Everything rested on Isaac. And so you remember that Abraham took Isaac up and right as he was about to slay him, there was a substitute, a lamb, who came and took the place of Isaac. Just as there is one who was dead for three days, who took our place and who rose again from the dead. We see it in Joseph. Here's Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers, despised by men, but ended up being the material savior of his people. There was Moses who was almost killed at birth, who came to be the one who would deliver his people out of bondage in that way to slavery. Christ the one who set us free from bondage to sin. We see it in David who was to be the representative of God's righteousness on the earth. We see Christ as the righteous one. We see it in Hosea even as he tells us through the enactment of his own life that God is the one who receives back to himself the one who has been unfaithful, the harlot. And so we see it in everything. And the apostles preached it. And now Peter is saying, listen, even the angels want to look at this. Now I have to be honest with you. I wouldn't mind seeing what the angels see. I mean, angels aren't that great, but they're pretty cool. I think I would really like to see what the angels are interested in. And Peter says, you know what the angels are interested in? They're interested in your salvation. They're interested to see how all this is going to play out. Because we know that, that there are fallen angels, but there's no savior for them. And you've got to think that after humanity fell, after humanity sinned, the angels are starting to think, I wonder now what's going to happen to them. And the Savior came. The very Son of God. And the angels are captivated by that. So what's Peter's point? Peter's point is this, listen. This salvation that you have been given is great. In fact, it's the only thing that God's really ever been interested in. It's the only thing really that brings him such glory so that he is interested in this and he's been interested in this since the very beginning. He's been interested in this all along. This has been what he's been saying all along. And yes, in fact, it is a narrow road, but it's straight and it leads you straight into his heart, straight into his presence. Don't deviate from this at all. Because you see, there are great things that that look good in the world around us that tempt us to deviate from this great salvation for us to take it for granted. And for those of you graduating, especially graduating from high school, many graduating from college next week, graduating from high school today, you have to realize for high school graduates that that the temptations that you will face tomorrow are greater than any temptations you've faced thus far. Because thus far, your life, even though you don't admit this, has been fairly easy. You've been fairly well-defined by your parents and by your peers and by your school and all of that, and by your church, and I trust by your profession of faith. But as soon as you're out of high school, you begin on a road of making all kinds of decisions, redefining and defining yourself. And the world's going to come up to you and they don't think your salvation is all that hot. 
Don't be confused by all the hype over the Passion of the Christ movie. They still don't like him unless they believe in him. And so there's all this out there where people will be saying to you, go this way, go that way. You don't need to do this. You don't need to think that. That doesn't need to be your belief. And Peter's saying, listen, don't deviate no matter what trouble you encounter. Don't deviate no matter what grief you experience. Because this salvation is great because it's from God. And it's all he's ever talked about. And it's all he's ever planned. And it's the only thing he's put into place. And he put it into place in the very beginning, all the way back in the book of Genesis. And he, and he talked about it by the Spirit of Christ through all of his prophets who were pointing to Christ as sufferings and glories. And you've seen now the sufferings of Christ. And here is the glories of Christ, salvation in him. Don't stop now. Don't deviate now. I'm going to tell you how to live. And it won't be all touchy-feely. It will be tough-minded. Be holy. Don't give in to the desires of your sinful nature. Humble yourselves before God and trust Him. And don't stop. Don't deviate from the path. For this salvation is great and there is no other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that there would be nothing that would come before our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our lives that would cause us to think it more glorious than Christ. So I pray that we would be a people who understands the greatness of this salvation, its grace, its hope, its security, the design of its life, and that we would be people not to deviate at all from the path, but to continue on and persevere to the end, trusting Christ, humbling ourselves before him, giving ourselves to him, following him with every ounce of our being as the Spirit of God moves in us. Father, way we never take for granted this great salvation. Enable us to see the costliness of it through the sufferings of Christ, but enable us to see the glories of it through the triumph of Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.